these transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. There once was a time when most of the world was a mystery to the majority of Americans. In the late 19th century, most of what was known about how the rest of the world looked came from a popular device called a stereoscope, which was an early version of the Viewmaster. One pretty young female reporter decided that she would travel around the globe and report on all she experienced. Not only would she travel alone with just one small handbag, but also have the goal of beating the fictional Phineas Fogg's 80-day trip. She became a hero as the whole country followed her adventures and cheered her on. Today I have the story of Nellie Bly and her attempts to circle the globe on the 212th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee Coffee with Jeff. Good Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff and for the next half hour or so I'll be your storyteller. For those new to the podcast, my name is Jeff, and I spend about two weeks or so researching a topic I'd like to know more about, and then write it into an engaging story. Or at least, that's the idea. So, for a lot of today's story, I used Nellie Bly's own book, Around the World in 72 Days. I took a lot of today's story directly from her book, and those sections will be voiced by my friend Nancy Fry. In fact, I used so much of Nellie Bly's own words that the show probably should have been called Coffee with Jeff and Nancy. But, you know, that would involve me commissioning a whole new theme song, and, well, it gets tricky. I read the first three or four chapters of the book, but then time was running out, so I downloaded the audiobook so I could listen to it while I was driving or working. I found it interesting to hear her impressions of lands she knew nothing of. It was in the late 19th century, and very few Americans had knowledge of what went on around the other side of the world. I especially loved hearing her experiences in Japan, and I found it amusing how she delicately described her seasickness while aboard ship. If you are interested, the book as well as the audiobook are available for free. I downloaded an audiobook by LibriVox Audiobooks. And of course, I'll have links to these in the show notes. Again, thanks to Nancy Fry for being my Nellie Bly for this and last week's episode. I know there was a lot this week, Nancy. Anyway, let's get to the story of a most remarkable woman who traveled around the world. She wasn't modest about anything. I mean, this was very much part of the Bly persona and part of, I think, what made her reading so compelling because you were just astonished at what she was willing to say about herself, including, you know, her sparkling eyes and her fantastic smile and her tiny little wasp waist. We hear about these things over and over and over again. I mean, reporters use what they have, and the fact that she was a woman um, was really a strike against her. So if she could turn that around and somehow make the fact of her being a, a female interviewer an asset in a story, I say more power to her. A quick <laughs> recap of part one. Nellie Bly was born in 1864 as Elizabeth Jane Cochran. Her life was set into turmoil after her father's death and her mother's next marriage to an abusive alcoholic. Her attempts to go to college was interrupted for financial reasons, yet through a series of strange circumstances, she found herself a reporter for the Pittsburgh Dispatch and The World, a New York City newspaper. She achieved world fame when she went undercover as a mentally challenged woman and spent 10 days in the Woman's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island in New York 
exposing the abuse and horrible conditions the institution's patients were forced to endure. After, she kept on going, reporting on both weighty, serious issues and lighthearted subjects. For the most part, Nellie's stories were centered on topics she thought were important, like when she interviewed Susan B. Anthony. We begin part two in 1887. By this time, many other newspapers are hiring their own female reporters, Nellie Bly copies. Most of these female reporters concentrated on fantastic, usually pointless stunts to attract an audience. There was one who posed as a beggar for a day, another who let herself be shot while wearing an early version of a bulletproof vest. Most of these stories had no real social value, like the articles Nellie Bly was doing, but they made for interesting reading. These women reporters were known as stunt reporters. Meanwhile, Nellie was working harder than ever, and it had been a long time since she had any type of vacation. She was beginning to think she could use some time off. It had been Nellie's routine to think about story ideas on the weekend and then present them to her editor on Monday morning. But one Sunday night, she was at a loss for something fresh. By three o'clock in the morning, she was tossing in her bed, her head aching. Finally, she said to herself, I wish I was on the other side of the earth. And then a thought came. And why not? I need a vacation. Why not a trip around the world? Soon the idea of doing it, as Phineas Fogg did, popped into her head. The year was 1888, and the book Around the World in 80 Days by French writer Jules Verne came out about 15 years earlier, so a trip such as this wouldn't have been too far removed from the fictional one. Is the trip that Fogg made possible, and could she accomplish the voyage in less time? She was soon fast asleep. The next morning, even before going to work, she visited the steamship company office and began researching their schedules. But her excitement might have been brought down a little when she told her publisher, I want to go around the world in 80 days or less. I think I can beat Phileas Fogg's record. May I try it? The publisher told her that the paper had previously thought of the idea, but they were thinking of sending a man. But he thought he was in favor of sending her... It was the business manager who had other ideas. He told her, It is impossible for you to do it. In the first place, you are a woman and would need a protector. And even if it were possible for you to travel alone, you would need to carry so much baggage that it would detain you in making rapid changes. Besides, you speak nothing but English, so there's no use talking about it. No one but a man can do this. Very well. Start the man, and I'll start the same day for some other newspaper and beat him. I believe you would, he said slowly. While no plans were set, she was told that if ever a trip was to happen, she would be the one to go. It wasn't until a cold, rainy day over a year later that she was calling to her publisher's office. Thinking she was about to be scolded for something she had done, she was pleasantly surprised when he said, Can you start around the world the day after tomorrow? Her heart rate picked up as she told him that she could start that very minute. She promptly went to the fashionable dressmaker, Gromley, and told him she wanted a dress that could be worn continuously for three months and that she needed it to be ready by that evening. By five o'clock that evening, after two fittings, she had her dress. She considered the ease in which she could get that dress at the last minute a good omen. Her next stop was to get an ulster, which is a long overcoat. The one she selected was a checkered coat, and the image of her in that coat would become famous. 
She also purchased a lighter dress to be worn when the weather was nice. The packing was the biggest challenge. How to get so many things into one small handbag, as one bag was all she wanted to take. She soon realized that the lighter dress would have to be left behind as there was no room. She was able to pack two traveling caps, three veils, a pair of slippers, all her toilet articles, inkstand pens, pencils, and copy paper, pins, needles, and a thread, a dressing gown, a tennis blazer, a small flask and drinking cup, several complete changes of underwear, a liberal supply of handkerchiefs, and a large jar of cold cream to keep her face from chapping in the various climates. The bulky bottle took up a lot of room, but she called it the bane of her existence. The paper gave her 200 pounds in gold and Bank of England notes and some American bills to test who would accept them. On Thursday, November 14, 1889, at 10.40 a.m., after a night in which she found it difficult to sleep, Nellie Bly began her journey. After saying goodbye to friends and family who were there to send her off, she climbed aboard the ship Augusta Victoria of the Hamburg American Line and was on her way a 24,899-mile journey with the goal of finishing in 75 days. People cheered as the boat pulled away from Hoboken, New Jersey, on the way to London. But when the whistle blew and they were on the pier and I was on the Augusta Victoria, which was slowly moving, but surely moving away from all I knew, taking me to strange lands and strange people, I felt lost. My head felt dizzy, and my heart felt as if it would burst. Only 75 days. Yes, but it seemed an age, and the world lost its roundness and seemed a long distance with no end. And, well, I never turned back. Her departure was front-page news on the world, and it would be followed closely by its readers. There were headlines such as, Nellie Bly is off. She takes the word in her great race against time around the globe. Will she beat the record? One newspaper said of Nellie, It should be explained here that Nellie Bly is a young woman, petite and rather fragile looking for this perilous task she undertook. Her pluck and spirit and self-reliance are shown by the fact that she is traveling 25,000 miles without a protector. Every American should be proud of her. It took her seven days to travel to London on the Atlantic. It took her seven days to travel to London across the Atlantic. She slept through a lot of the voyage as she was experiencing severe seasickness. Do you get seasick? I was asked in an interested, friendly way. That was enough. I flew to the railing. Sick? I looked blindly down, caring little what the wild waves were saying, and gave vent to my feelings. People are always unfeeling about seasickness. When I wiped the tears from my eyes and turned around, I saw smiles on the face of every passenger. I've noticed that they're always on the same side of the ship when one is taken suddenly, overcome, as it were, with one's own emotions. The smiles did not bother me, but one man said sneeringly, "'And she's going around the world?' I too joined in the laugh that followed." Silently, I marveled at my boldness to attempt such a feat wholly unused, as I was, to sea voyages. Still, I did not entertain one doubt as to the result. In fact, during one stretch of 22 hours, she didn't leave her bed. The captain checked on her, wondering perhaps if she had died. In London, she received an interesting proposal. 
While in France, she could meet the man who inspired the journey, Jules Verne. The problem was it might put her behind schedule. But she was told it wouldn't put her behind schedule if she was willing to go without sleep for two days. The idea of meeting the famous man was too good of an opportunity for her to pass up. When I saw them, I felt as any other woman would have done under the same circumstances. I wondered if my face was travel-stained and if my hair was tossed. There was little time for regret. They were advancing toward us, and in another second, I had forgotten my untidiness in the cordial welcome they gave me. Jules Verne's bright eyes beamed on me with interest and kindliness, and Madame Verne greeted me with the cordiality of a cherished friend. There were no stiff formalities to freeze the kindness in all our hearts, but a cordiality expressed with such charming grace that before I had been many minutes in their company, they had won my everlasting respect and devotion. Unfortunately, the Verne spoke no English and Bly no French, so there wasn't much conversation as they traveled to Verne's home. But once inside, through a translator, they were able to have a pleasant conversation. The highlight of the visit was when Vern took Nellie out into the hallway where he had a large world map that showed the journey of Phineas Fogg. Vern added Nellie's trip to the map, and she felt very honored. She couldn't stay long. If she missed her train, it would cause a full day's delay. But before she left, they all clinked their wine glasses, and Jules Vern wished her Godspeed. And then through a translator, he said... If you do it in 79 days, I shall applaud with both hands. Trying his best to speak English, he said as their glasses came together, Good luck, Nellie Bly. And then Madame Verne asked if she could give her a kiss goodbye, and both ladies kissed each other on the cheek. Then Nellie was off. Now what Nellie didn't realize at the time was she had competition. Elizabeth Bisland of Cosmopolitan Magazine left New York on the same day as Nellie, but was going the other way around the world. It wouldn't be till she was in China before she learned of her competition. The idea of a race between two women were played up big in all the papers. When she left France due to her tea break with Jules Verne, it was more important than ever that she did not miss a connection. And at each stop, she frantically looked for a shop that she could send a message by teletype back to her publisher. When she arrived in Brandisi, Italy, she was met by a great rush and a good deal of yelling from the men outside, mainly in broken English. From there it was on to Port Said, Egypt, then Singapore, and then to Hong Kong. All along the way, she reported on the things she'd seen, the food she ate, and the people she met. Back in New York, when the newspaper didn't have much to report on, they would run stories on the country she was in, geography lessons and such. They even wrote about what others were saying about her, including stories from rival newspapers. They invented a Around the World with Nellie Bly board game and had a contest to guess her arrival time. All was going great until day 26 of her journey. She was two full days ahead of schedule, but all that changed when she reached Colombo, a city in South Asia. They were to transfer to the steamship Nepal, but the ship was late, five days late. Talking to an elderly man about the Nepal and their five-day delay, she wrote, May she go to the bottom of the bay when she does get in, I said savagely. The old tub. I think it an outrage to be kept waiting five days for a tub like that. Colombo is a pleasant place to stay, the elderly man said with a twinkle in his eye. Well, it may be, if staying there does not mean more than life to one, really, it would afford me the most intense delight to see the Nepal go to the bottom of the sea. 
Evidently, my ill humor surprised them, and their surprise amused me, for I thought how little anyone could realize what this delay meant to me. And the mental picture of a forlorn little self creeping back to New York ten days behind time with a shamed look on her face and afraid to hear her name spoken made me laugh outright. They gazed at me in astonishment while I laughed immoderately at my own unenviable position. My better nature surged up with a laugh, and I was able to say once again, hmm, everything happens for the best. When she reached Singapore, she bought a small monkey. On the way to her next stop, Hong Kong, she traveled through some fierce storms. It was in Hong Kong that she learned of her competition. She was at the Oriental and Occidental Steamship Company to learn the earliest possible time she could leave for Japan. A man there told her, you are going to get beaten. When she seemed confused by the statement, he said, Aren't you having a race around the world? She responded by saying it was time she was racing. And then he said, Time? I don't think that's her name. For a moment, Nellie thought something was wrong with the man, but soon he told her of Elizabeth Bisland and that she intended to make it around the world in 70 days. She told him, I promised my editor that I would go around the world in 75 days, and if I accomplish that, I shall be satisfied. I'm not racing with anyone. I would not race. If someone else wants to do the trip in less time, that's their concern. If they take it upon themselves to race against me, it is their lookout that they succeed. I'm not racing. I promised to do the trip in 75 days, and I will do it. Although I had been permitted to make the trip when I first proposed it over a year ago, I should then have done it in 60 days. The morning of day 41 was spent in a leper colony in China, and then a lunch at the Temple of the Dead. Then it was on to a stop in Japan. She wrote of her visit to a Japanese home. At the door, we saw all the wooden shoes of the household, and we were asked to take off our shoes before entering, a proceeding rather disliked by some of the party who refused absolutely to do as requested. We effected a compromise, however, by putting cloth slippers over our shoes. We sat upon the floor, for chairs there are none in Japan, but the exquisite matting is padded until it is soft as velvet. It was laughable to see us trying to sit down, and yet more so to see us endeavor to find a posture of ease for our limbs. We were about as graceful as an elephant dancing. After leaving Japan, she began a two-week journey across the Pacific Ocean, in which time was getting short. She couldn't afford any delay if she was going to make it. And while this made compelling copy for the world newspaper, Nellie said, If I fail, I will never return to New York, I would say despondently. I would rather go in dead and successful than alive and behind time. The bad weather the ship encountered would often get her depressed as she was convinced it would make her late. The captain and the crew of the ship would always do their best to coax a smile from her. There was even talk about throwing the monkey overboard as monkeys were believed to bring bad weather to ships. Nellie refused and the monkey's life was saved. It was on day 68 that the ship arrived in San Francisco. There was a rumor that there might be a smallpox quarantine on the ship, so Nellie and her monkey jumped into a tugboat to make it to land. There was no time for farewells. The monkey was taken on the tug with me, and my baggage, which had increased by gifts from friends, was thrown after me. Just as the tug steamed off, the quarantine doctor called to me that he had forgotten to examine my tongue, and I could not land until he did. I stuck it out. He called out, All right! The others laughed, I waved farewell, and in another moment I was parted from my good friends on the Oceanic. 
only 3,000 miles to go across the United States by train. She found that it had been arranged for her to have a special train, one with just one sleeping coach and an engine. It would take her all the way to Chicago. Along the way, she was greeted with cheers and flowers and other presents. I only remember my trip across the continent as one maze of happy greetings, happy wishes, congratulating telegrams, fruit, flowers, loud cheers, wild hurrahs, rapid handshaking, and a beautiful car filled with fragrant flowers attached to a swift engine that was tearing like mad through flower-dotted valley and over snow-tipped mountain. On, on, on. It was glorious. A ride worthy of a queen. It was from San Francisco to Albuquerque to Kansas to Chicago, all made in the record time of 67 hours. In Chicago, she found songs were being sung about her, including one called Globetrotting Nellie Bly. And the stockbrokers called her one of the boys and gave her a special cheer. She also learned that Elizabeth Bislin had fallen hopelessly behind schedule and wasn't in competition anymore. People can say what they please about Chicago, but I do not believe that anywhere else in the United States a woman can get a greeting which will equal that given by the Chicago Board of Trade. The applause was followed by cheer after cheer and cries of speech, but I took off my little cap and shook my head at them, which only served to increase their cheers. In Pittsburgh, a huge crowd greeted her at the train station, at least half women. Leaving Pittsburgh, there was only 300 miles to go. Speech-making was the order from Philadelphia on to Jersey City. I was told when we were almost home to jump to the platform the moment the train stopped at Jersey City, for that made my time around the world. The station was packed with thousands of people, and the moment I landed on the platform, one yell went up from them, and the cannons at the battery in Fort Greene boomed out the news of my arrival. I took off my cap and wanted to yell with the crowd, not because I'd gone around the world in 72 days, but because I was home again. She arrived back in New Jersey on January 25, 1890 at 3.51 p.m. Her adventure took her 72 days, 6 hours, and 11 minutes, a new around-the-world record. Nellie Bly was a world celebrity in a day when the idea of celebrities was something new. Advertisers rushed to her, for her name would sell. She was the perfect person to sell products. She was pretty, well-spoken, and everybody knew her name. There was a hotel named after her as well as a racehorse and a train. She was 25 and was perhaps the most famous person in America, possibly the world. Her fame didn't last long. The stunt reporter craze soon faded. But she didn't stop, traveling all over the country to report on social injustices. When she was 31, she married a 73-year-old millionaire manufacturer named Robert Seaman. After about 10 years, he passed away, so Nellie took over his ironclad manufacturing company. Unfortunately, due to her inexperience and her efforts to make the business a model of social welfare, and the fact that her employees built the firm out of hundreds of thousands of dollars, the company soon went bankrupt. But while there, she did patent several inventions related to oil manufacturing, many of which are still used today. She went back to the one thing she did well, and that was reporting. She covered the women's suffragette movement and World War I. During the war, she traveled to Europe as the first woman to report from the trenches on the front line. On January 27, 1922, Nellie Bly died of pneumonia at St. Mark's Hospital in New York City at the age of 57. 
In a published tribute in the New York Evening Journal column in the next day's paper, Arthur Brisbane remembered her as the best reporter in America. It was aimed at boosting circulation, but at the same time, it was very much aimed at investigation and doing good and changing society. It involved, you know, Nellie posing as a domestic employee to see how the employment agencies were treating women who came with little education and little possibility to find work. Um, it would have her posing as an unwed mother trying to sell a baby to expose the baby buying trade in New York. We use a million avenues like this that really were about social reform, which of course was such an important part of what was happening in the 1880s and 1890s. A little bit before I go. I want to thank everybody who has stuck with me this last year. I learned a lot, and hopefully you did too. But now it's time for me to take a little break, a little time off, to regroup and come up with some ideas for 2021. But don't worry, the Fries, both Nancy and Gordon, will be filling in for me for the next two episodes. Their conversational style of storytelling is always a welcome change for my completely scripted show. Speaking of ideas for 2021, you know, if you've got any topic ideas, please let me know. You can contact me on Twitter, Facebook, or email. My email address is coffeewithjeff at gmails.com. So again, thank you very much for joining me on these adventures. I'll be talking to you next year. So now, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers entertainment podcast. You know, it takes money to produce these shows, so if you got a few coins that you can afford to donate to keep the show going, I would be forever grateful. You can do so by contributing to my Patreon page. Just go to coffeewithjeff.com for more information. Hey, and tell all your friends about it, won't you? You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason, even to say hi. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. Like I said, your story ideas are always welcome. And links to the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link to it at the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank Nancy Fry for playing Nellie Bly once again. To my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who continue to support the show, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to those special people who repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, happy holidays, and I'll be back in a month. Bye.
coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Beantown. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Yeah.